people, products and markets. I really believe that these are the three components that eventually make or break your startup success. And while most founders have sleepless nights thinking about their products and their markets, what they often tend to forget is the fact that a product can never be built and its fit with the market also will never be found if you don't have an amazing team to do this with together. My name is Charlotte. I am co-founder and CEO of Equalture, which is a team composition technology that helps tech scale-ups from all over the world in uh, building the team they need to be able to scale. And in this podcast, I chat with scale-up founders and CEOs from all over the world who've already discovered the incredible value and an incredible impact that their team has on their business. We talk about their way, their, their journey of building a team, their milestones, their failures, their lessons learned, um, all to help remind all founders out there of the incredible importance of their team and hopefully to help you build your winning team to scale. So my guest for this very first episode of the Skill Team podcast is Digby Velrod. And Digby is the CEO and founder of Feastit, which is UK's leading event platform that allows you to discover and book the best suppliers for your event. And is also listed number seven in the UK startup list of 2020. The company was founded in 2017, is now already with 37 people. And today I have a chat with Digby about his journey of building a team. Um, what were the milestones? What were the pitfalls? Uh, how has COVID-19 impacted his team? How is Black Lives Matter reflecting on uh, um, his vision on team building? Um, and all other things that are important in his journey to scale a team. Welcome, Digby. It's nice to uh, to have you in uh, in this episode of the the Skill Up Team podcast today. One Cheers. question before we start, um, because we uh, of course we had a small chat before we started recording this podcast, and you mentioned normally I don't do a lot of podcasts. So why this one? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, you know obviously you get quite a lot of requests um, at kind of startups, and I think especially around podcasts, there's a lot of people creating podcasts, and then there's a lot of content out there. And I think. What what really interesting in this is that it's, it's on a topic that I think is really dear to our heart, which is around team and culture and how how you can look at teams as beyond something that's just a resource and something that kind of inspires the vision, not just enacts the vision. So for me, that's something I've really yeah, something I'm probably the most proud of what we built so far, and it's something I'm always really happy to talk about. And you built quite a lot actually. I uh, I read something about you online. You're UK leading UK's leading event platform. You founded the company in 2017 or are already with uh, uh, 37 people now a lot have happened in the last few years what what was the what what has been the journey the journey you've you've been through yeah it's been an incredibly busy busy couple of years um so i uh, yeah i co-founded the company in 2017 um with a childhood friend called hugo we and kind of always had this vision of we, we both worked in different aspects of events in different times. Um, so I, I worked in the events industry for a couple of years in lots of different hats, actually. So a couple of years in the States, uh, one year at Smithsonian DC, then for an organization called Brit Week in LA, and then back here in the UK for a, start, a tech startup focusing on festivals called Festicket. Hugo was um, predominantly a journalist um, and had done, you know, covered festivals and stuff like that, but worked for The Independent at the time, but had previously written for The Telegraph. Um, the Times and kind of a number of different publications. So 
um, for us, it was just, yeah, we saw this total gap in the market around events where basically the way we look at it is that the events industry is becoming progressively organized by millennials. Millennials like doing things online, but the way the industry at the time was totally analog. So for us, we wanted to build a digital solution to what is kind of currently an analog problem. And for the people organizing the events, that's a single platform where they can help discover the supplies they need. And then equally importantly for the suppliers, they're small independent businesses. There's 25,000 events businesses in the UK, most yeah. of them sole traders or really small teams. They don't have the ability to digitally market. They don't know nothing about how to SEO rank. So for us, it's to build a platform that also really, really helps them acquire um, to acquire new business. So that, that was the original idea. And then, yeah, it's just kind of, you know, Hugo and I were 24 when we had, when we started this company. We really didn't know a huge amount about the startup ecosystem or how to raise funding or any of those kind of problems that you kind of, you kind of discover pretty quickly. And we definitely didn't know all of the lingo around it and we had no contacts in the space at all. So it's been a pretty amazing journey to go from there, from two of us, um, 20, yeah, we'll do with it. 36 months ago, I guess, something like that, um, mm -hmm. to, yeah, the team's now in 30 plus. Um, we've brought on board incredible investors from retail, tech, hospitality. Um, and yeah, it's been a pretty amazing journey so far, but yeah, busy, very, very busy. I can imagine. It's actually interesting that you mentioned that you were 24 when you founded the company, because when uh, I founded my company together with my sister, I was 21 or 22. Uh, and I think for me, what has always been quite a challenge is uh, uh, you start building a team while you have zero experience with building a team. Uh, and in our case, we didn't even have experience in working for someone else. So how was it for you? Because you will, you, you, uh, I'm sure that you've hired people that are older with more experience. How was that journey for you being so young and then, and then developing such a big team? No, it's a really good question. And I think it's something that's, it's definitely something we've been really really conscious of throughout and i think for us the main part of it is to yeah there's kind of two parts like you, you have to be arrogant enough and have enough self-conviction that you think that you've got an idea that's worthy of building a company around which is you know there's there's a part of that it's, you're not very humble if at 24 you think that um but then beyond that there is that element that you've also got to understand that there you're not you're there's a lot of stuff you're not going to be good at you've had you you know you haven't that's three years out of university that I had not had the ability or the time to learn so many of the skills that are necessary. So it's totally about finding the people that bring those skills to the table. And th those skills are really, really diverse when you're starting out. It's not just someone who understands how to run Google AdWords campaigns, it's someone who understands cultural aspects of business. It's people who understand actually building a company and a culture and an entire organization, not just people who understand how to solve individual problems. And for us, I think that was a really, that was something we got really early on. I think. We'd both worked in companies that had brilliant cultures. We both worked in companies that had really negative cultures and toxic cultures before. So mm -hmm. for us, I think we had a really clear understanding of the kind of place we wanted to work and the kind of emotions we wanted to inspire in people we worked with, as well as then what problems we used to solve. And I think, and I think there's, a, there's a real duality there that we, we really focused on. So it was hard. It's really, really hard. And I, and I think it actually doesn't necessarily you know it's still the case right you're as, as the bigger you get the more serious people you're hiring the more senior people you're hiring yeah. and the, the problem doesn't necessarily shift but for us it's always been a case of i think one one thing that hugo and i have always really really pushed is that is a culture of questioning us in mm -hmm. that i think we're always very open that whatever we're saying is our opinion and sometimes that opinion is really informed sometimes it's really not as informed as it could be 
and that we really like people who challenge us. In the same way that I really like challenging people, I'm a, I'm a fairly argumentative person. So I really like challenging and assuming, I like it when I am the devil's advocate and I really like it when people, other people play devil's advocate as well and really like push you to okay. question everything. And I think that that's probably been one of our strengths as a company is that there's an assumption that everything we do, we do badly. So therefore it can be improved. And if everyone accepts that the work they do could be bad, therefore it's all, no one has an ego around whether there's a potential improvement to it. And I think just having that constant culture means that when no one's ever offended by someone challenging them or anything like that, you, it really becomes a culture of everyone is assuming that we're trying to achieve the best thing together. Do you think that you would have the exact same culture and, and if, if you were 10 years older, for instance? I think that we have a very friendly culture. I'm trying to think of the right word of it is like, uh, yeah, like matey, but that sounds like laddish, which it isn't. It's more like it's, you know, it's a culture of people who really enjoy spending time with each other. And I think that, that's something that probably comes from having the company skewing slightly younger. And it's something we're definitely, we want to become more diverse in terms of age and something we really want to improve is that, but it, mm -hmm. I think, it means the company is quite a big part of a lot of people's lives. Um, so we spend a lot of social time with each other. I mean, during lockdown, you know, I, I cycled over and had drinks in parks with people who work for us. And like, there's, there's, there's also a sense of like, we have conversations of just beyond just business. We're actually really, really enjoy spending time with each other. And I think that means that there's, and for me, that's been really important for two factors. There's the cynical side of it, which is that it means that people are willing to work later and harder for people they like, not for me necessarily, but for each other. You know, you're willing to stay in a couple of hours late in the office to help someone out if they're falling behind because you really like that person, you care about them and you care about their social life and that you, you get that side of it. And the other is that actually just like, it's really important to be a place that people want to spend time. You genuinely, like it just, I yep. have worked in businesses where I did not enjoy my nine hours in the office mm -hmm. and therefore I want to leave on time. I don't want to hang out with my colleagues I can't be bothered to think about work outside of the office all those things that fall from there and actually so beyond that there's that side of it as well which is it's really important that people enjoy what they do you're going to get lower churn on staff you'll get better people you'll get better work out of everyone and you know like it's you spend a huge amount of your life with these people your colleagues so it's really important that you actually enjoy spending time with them so I, th I wonder if it the, whether us being young when we found it meant that it was a larger part of our social life than it might have been otherwise. But I, I don't know, it's a really hard one to answer. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. But um, how was then the, 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 the lockdown period for you? Because in the UK, uh, the situation is still quite different from what it is here in the Netherlands. If you, if you are so used to that spending time together also outside of work, I can imagine that the, the shift to fully remote working, not being able to see each other, uh, must have had an impact on your team. Yeah, it's been huge. I think so. We've we've always had a, a level of flexible working where people can work from home and kind of to a certain degree. But we've always really encouraged people to be in the office as much as possible. Prior, partly because I really like it's kind of as we're saying culture, right? Like for me, that's I think people being together in one space and and going from a really small team and kind of transitioning. There's that's always been part of it. So. That was really interesting. That's really interesting for me. I, I personally am not a huge fan of um, working from home, not in terms of other people mm -hmm. doing it. I personally just don't enjoy it. I don't, mm -hmm. I like being in the office. I like having that break between the two parts of my life. Um, but yeah, so it was very interesting. Um, it, it was, it's something that, I, it's taught me a lot about 
how how strong our team is. Um, you know, we people pull together and we have a busier social calendar than we've ever had. We do everything from coffee meetups. Um, you get assigned a couple of people at the start of the week that you have to have a coffee catch up, like not talk about work, just coffee catch up with. We do a big social every single week on either Thursday or Friday, depending on how good the weather is. Because mm -hmm. we, we found when the, when it was 30 degrees, people much rather have it on a Thursday than on a Friday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we did, we've done yoga classes together. We've done workouts, we've done all sorts of stuff. We've done craft lessons. We've done cocktail making classes. We've done cooking lessons. So wow. we've actually found with lots and lots of stuff we've had to do. I think it, it requires a lot more effort maintain the culture when people are distanced from each other. Yep. I think it's a much, yep. much harder thing to do. Um, we've actually got our first meetup on Thursday this week with the first time that a bunch of us are hanging out like as a group together. Um, and we're all meeting up in the park to socially distance, have a drink. But um, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely been a strange environment. It's not something, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to like a return to semblance of normality on that side of it. But, you know, it, it forces you to do things like you have to be, way more prepared in um in what you want to achieve in a week and you've got to be far far more structured in your planning and you've got to you know we use asana as a uh, project management tool and you've got to be really hot on that and because you lose all of those moments of like grabbing someone for five minutes but then yeah. at the same time the upside is that you get rid of all the meeting bloat and all the stuff that you've wasted time on actually disappears yeah. and suddenly people are a lot more efficient so there's, there's it's kind of yeah it's an up and down to that i guess yeah, 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 I can, uh, I definitely agree. I think for us it was quite challenging as well in the beginning, how to look for a balance in which you you uh, you don't want to bother people with uh, virtual drinks every day, uh, but you do need to, to maintain the culture that you're having and make sure that people keep chatting with each other. So I can definitely imagine that. You've been through a journey in, in building that team. Uh, can we go back to the moment uh, when you first started hiring people? How was that? How was that moment for you? How scared were you in bringing in your first non-founding colleague in this team? Yeah, it was terrifying. I think also we lied. I mean, because we um, the first person we ever interviewed, we didn't actually have an office, and we were really embarrassed about that. So we interviewed, we interviewed them in a coffee shop. <laughs> and I think I think we said like the office was being done up or something. I can't. I can't. I remember. I remember us very like really implying as i live with my co-founder before we started the company we don't live with each other anymore but we did we did at the time we could, that was enough six months of that was already enough but um but we did so and we were really we were way too embarrassed to like invite the person to come interview in our living room so we, we kind of like made up a slight story yeah it's terrifying i remember we and then the first we we hired two people at the same time for the first first day um and i remember being there it's one of the most like nervous parts i've ever had in the company was buying the pens and the and the notepads, and it just have been so desperate to make it seem like we were a real company. And yeah. we're in this tiny, I think, we've, yeah, we're in this tiny little office in um, part of London called Bourbonsy. And yeah, I remember, yeah, that was like a really intense thing. So that was, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, we've, it's something we, we got hiring right really early on. We've got, I think, three out of our five earliest hires now run large departments in the company. Wow. And um, have stayed with us the whole way through, and have people who joined us in fairly senior, uh, fairly junior roles, and have just like totally progressed with us. And I think we've always, always been pretty good at interviewing and hiring, um, and that's something I think we're we're really, really happy with. But it's yeah, it's it's stressful. I think it's like it's very, it's, to begin with, it's kind of it's, it's it's a very hard thing to you're not you don't it's a very hard thing to prepare yourself for. I think especially as if 
I'd only have ever been involved in interviews as like the final stage at other companies. I've never actually been the full person making the decision. Yeah, 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 I can imagine. And do you also experience the, uh, uh, I talk to a lot of founders and they always uh, talk about those two flipping points that you have in your team. So you have one flipping point when you are uh, moving from 10 to 11 people and then you have that flipping point when you move from 25 to 26 people. Well, you've had both of them now. Uh, did you experience that as well? That, that all of a sudden I add one new team member to the team and, and I, need to, I need to change my battle plan? Yeah, I think to a certain degree. The, our, our growth has been quite interesting. So we've, we've never, we've always grown in quite big in, in installments. So we've always, mm -hmm. we've done funding rounds and we've done all the hiring for that entire round in one go directly after the rounds. And then not, so we've never, in an odd sense, we've never kind of, we never went from 25 to 26. We kind of went from 15 to 30. And we and never that, went- That's and, even more challenging then. Yeah, exactly. And definitely, it definitely is a huge change in culture. I think I think the thing that we personally got right about is we've always moved office in line with that, which has almost made it like it's a new company. It's a real fresh start. So you move office and the team's a big size and that like it gives you quite a good opportunity to hit the reset button. But definitely, I think I think there's different challenges. I think you go from when I think 10 definitely was probably that number where you go from being really tight knit where this is totally everyone's life and everyone feels complete ownership of every aspect of it to you being a company. That's probably mm -hmm. that 10, that 10 mark. And then that probably 25 mark is it goes from, I think the thing that I realized I suddenly found that I wasn't talking to every single person every single day. And that's the yeah. thing that I found that I'd actually go a couple of days without catching up with someone. And you know, it's more junior roles, or there were people whose work I wasn't directly involved in at every level. And that's I, I definitely know that's something I struggle with. And you go from as a founder, you go from you and your co-founder doing every single role, you know, as and for us, because it's moved so quickly, right? You went from, we went from two to twenty in the space of twelve months or something like that. So wow. it went from doing every single role to suddenly actually doing lots of stuff us passing over and actually things that we really cared about like copy and design and stuff like that that we weren't necessarily skilled in but we just like had an emotional attachment to that I found it really strange handing the reins over on that and yeah I, I definitely I think it, there's it's a really it's a really, really interesting part and I'd say equally that yeah we started we started to feel it again when we went post 30 there's a part where there was something new people coming in that I wasn't necessarily that involved in the hiring process with Mm -hmm. that I, was kind of, I might have, I've ne we've never hired someone I haven't had a phone conversation with at least, but it's something we're finding people joining who I didn't, you know, I hadn't necessarily been the one who argued for that role to exist and I hadn't necessarily been the person who wasn't all involved in the hiring process and you almost, that, that was quite, I found that as a really strange change as well. But yeah. I think one thing we've managed to keep true throughout it is that, and it's the thing that everyone who's ever joined Thesis has always said is that we're incredibly friendly and we do a really, really, we really, really push trying to get people up to speed as much as possible. So we do things like we onboard people on Fridays. So mm -hmm. someone's first day is a Friday because your first day is a complete waste of time, right? Like you turn on your laptop and you get told what your email address is and you get the notebook and you kind of like show them where the coffee machine is. So we do all of that stuff. And then instantly the whole idea is we clock off early as a company and go and do something together as the whole company on a Friday afternoon or Friday mm -hmm. evening. They will go to, whether it goes to the pub or get a bunch of pieces in the office or something. And it means that your first day you've got the, end of work drinks and mm -hmm. like it kind of easier into that and then you almost when you then actually come in for your first real day on a Monday you've done all the boring logging on and knowing what the CRM we use is 
and that's kind of out of the way. And you've also, you will have met every single person in the company. Even if you only had a one minute chat with them, queuing for the bar or whatever it is, you would have had some social interaction with everyone. And then the first week, you meet every single person in the company formally. So your first week is purely focused on one-on-ones. You'll have mm -hmm. a one-on-one -on -one with every single person in the company. We're, luck we're lucky enough that we're still small enough that that's possible and we'll have to find ways as we scale what the equivalent of that is. But yeah. you do that and at the end of your first full week, you then have a lunch with the founders. You have a one-on-one -on -one with both the, both the founders and it's a really, really, really casual conversation. The idea of it to be as unformed as possible. And actually the main aim there is for you to give us feedback. We'll tell you what we do and roughly you know, come, you should talk to me about one thing or Hugo about another, but really it's trying to create, it's like as to get people to understand it's a really informal business. Like it's a really, we're, we want to be as approachable as possible. We want people to give us their feedback. Like what's about this onboarding process didn't work? Who have you not met? What did you learn? What haven't you learned? How, what do you feel like you're in the dark about? And you know, the final conversation you have at the end of that first week is with us, well, theoretically, hopefully we can answer most of those questions. Um, and or at least point you in the direction of the people who can answer them. So for us, like that's how we've tried to maintain the culture that we had when we were sub 10 people. And mm -hmm. it's all about trying to get everyone to get to know each other as quickly as possible, because no one does any actual real work in the first 10 days. So you might as well just focus on the whole company, like greasing the wheels and making everyone really understand each other in that time. Yeah, I fully agree. An interesting thing that you mentioned is the, the fact that you hire a lot of people at the same time. Uh, why is that? Because I think that, some people might be scared that okay if i if i double the company uh in a day it could really impact my company culture so why did you guys make a decision to to hire a lot of people at the same time that's a good question i think um yeah there's probably like there's the positive and the cynical answer so the cynical is that um we're always understaffed and a round of funding happens you can desperately get all the stuff that you've known you've needed for yeah. six months so it's more that there's like the financial constraints mean that you're so excited that you've got the capital that you can suddenly go and deploy it. So that's probably part of it. The other is that, um, it, it's, yeah, from a cultural perspective, it's, you want to level up and it sets this really clear mark of leveling up, right? And that's why mm -hmm. I said earlier that why we tie it in with moving office, which is this idea that there's this big moment where we go from, right, we were a seed level company, now we're a series A company almost. Mm -hmm. And you're going, and one part is we we're under 10 people, we use the cheaper tools, we use the free analytics tools, whatever, and now suddenly we're paying for those tools, we're a bigger company, we're in a nicer space, all those things, and they almost happen on one day, and it mm -hmm. means that both the new people feel like they're part of a bigger company and the, the stakes are higher and it's more mature or whatever, but also equally that you're you want to change the culture internally, and it's not, you want to change it internally whilst keeping all the things that were positive about the culture before, but mm -hmm. you know, the, the mission's bigger, the stakes are higher, and you want that, to, you want that emotion to be sensed across the entire board, Yep. And that, that's, that's been part of the logic. Um, also, the, um, Hugo and I are slight pushovers, and our team will push us to hire people, and we're, 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 like, we're always inclined to get more people to do it. So that, that's probably the, like, the other reason as well. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Another thing that you, um, you mentioned, which is, of course, uh, goes hand in hand with hiring a lot of people at the same time, is that all of a sudden uh, you are in, well, Let's phrase it differently. I am now in the transition from uh, being a founder and doing everything myself to enabling people to do their job in the best way. But you basically skipped the transition phase. You you hired a lot of people and, and from one day to another, you needed to to trust people in, in doing the job right. How was that? How was it for you as a founder? Are you are you a bit of a control freak? Yeah, I think I think it's. <laughs> 
I think it's really, I think it's really difficult. I think it's it's a really, really hard transition. And I'm, I'm, I know that's almost all my friends who have found is that's something we definitely talk about. And um, I also, I think that there's there's kind of two parts to that transition. One is you literally doing the work. And I actually didn't find that that hard. I've, um, the second is your vision being massively affected by other people, right? The vision for the company mm-hmm. being coming from other people, not just yourself. So in the first year, you almost, regardless of how big your team is, is you're probably working to a very narrow remit. And that vision has been almost totally driven by the founders because it's probably the vision they founded the company on. You know, we will achieve this in 12 months. What, who do we need? What do we need to do to get there? And, that, and then suddenly what you find when you get to like year three and four, it's not, you, you'll, you'll have matured so far beyond that that whilst the founders are still leading potentially, it's actually a lot more big ideas are coming from outside of you. And actually you'll suddenly find that the whole team is working on a project that didn't come from you as fans. It might come from your head of growth or your head of operations. And you'll suddenly find big projects that aren't your aren't your passion points about the company or the things the company's worked towards. And that that's definitely I that was that was a bigger transition than actually people doing the the smaller level work, you know. Um that and I think that definitely takes a lot. But I, it's also the thing that I made that's the thing that makes me so excited. Working with people that are smarter than you pushing you is like that's like what more could you want right um yeah. and that so for me that 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 it's great i think i am a control freak i'm sure my <laughs> i'm sure my team will have will have different readings on my attitude towards certain things but fundamentally like yeah i, I love i love being pushed i love people making arguments. i love it when people come up with really cool ideas and especially you know our head of growth current's brilliant to that he really pushes us on some he knows that side of the market so much better than I do. Equally with our, you know, equally when you talk to actually our head of design or fill our head of product, like they know, they understand their market and what they own about the business so much better than I can do. So actually it's always going to lead us on ideas about how we can push the design of our business forward. Like she's no, she has better answers than me. And it's almost like that, that it's hard because you might have a dream, you might as a founder have an idea and, she's the one reining you in mm-hmm. and but equally they're, they're pushing you further so yeah it's, it's strange it's a very very strange dynamic but and it was something that i definitely found difficult but you kind of get through to the other side of it and you realize this is a great it means you can leave the office on time sometimes which is quite nice <laughs> yeah is that moment already come uh, uh no but, um, <laughs> a couple of days a week maybe but no yeah i, can I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it ever comes i don't i don't I think I've ever spoken to a founder who clocks off. So maybe maybe you can do it, but you don't want to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> what's the what's the, the the biggest lesson you've learned in in building up your team so far? What would you would be? Well, let's phrase it differently. What was the the uh, the key positive takeaway? Like this is what we did completely right, and if I could do it all over again, this is what I definitely would do different. It's a really good question. Um, I think. That is positive. I think that we built into our hiring process culture really early on. Like from day one, that was a really, really important part of our hiring um, logic. And I think to the point that we we didn't hire people who were more experienced or cheaper or whatever the like positive thing that they might have had. We didn't hire them because we thought actually this person's not going to be a great fit. And we really always wanted a company of people that really enjoyed working with each other. And I think we got that really, really right. 
And that's the feedback we've had from every exit interview we've ever had. It's the testament to the fact that we have most people who've left the company still turn up to drinks regularly and we still hang out with them. And I'm in contact with, you know, the first three or four people who work for us, I'm in contact pretty regularly mm -hmm. with. And so that I think is something we totally nailed and I'm really, really proud of and I'm really proud of the culture we've ended up with as a result of that. I think negative, it's, it's a hard one. I think that Hugh and I didn't, you know, we are both white males and I think we could have understood the need to hire more diversely. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's probably the duality to what I said just before, which is that that culture might have led into us hiring similar, whether it be like neurodiversity or ethnic diversity or gender diversity. You know, there's, I think that we probably that we've we could have been better at that. We, we, we've been really good in terms of gender diversity, but we mm -hmm. probably we've not been as good as we could be in other places. And I think I think that's probably something that if I could go back to the scratch and start again would have been having much stronger self-policing on ourselves around what our diversity policy should be and understanding that much earlier than we necessarily did. I think it's something we've, we've been good at acknowledging and, and understand how to improve. But mm -hmm. yeah, the reality of the negative of everyone getting along is that that might mean that you hire people that are too similar. And as yeah. everyone knows, diverse teams in every sense of diverse, diverse teams create more conflict in a positive way and create a greater space for conflicting ideas that create more original ideas and i think stuff like that that probably would have been a much stronger thing for us to have done at the beginning so i, I think those are yeah almost and they're, 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 they can be two sides of the same coin in some regards yeah yeah, yeah i can imagine well i think you're not the only one who's uh, <laughs> who's finding yeah. it out a little bit later but yeah. you um the last thing i wanted to uh, to mention is that you uh, you guys wrote the black lives matter statement on your website um, in which you explain how you want to deal with the situation as a company. And one thing you indeed mentioned there is, is take a critical look at the, at the employment process and make sure that uh, uh, HR and hiring is aligned with uh, the statement that you're making over there in making the company more equal, more diverse, and more aware of the, the differences that people have and the, the, the biases that people have. Uh, how are you going to... What are you going to do with the next hire to uh, at least try to make that happen? No, I think it's a really good question. I think it's, it's obviously an incredibly timely question. So for us, we thought about it through a couple of different lenses. The first was kind of, as I mentioned, Hugh and I are very aware of the fact that we are two white male founders. So we, we very strongly felt that as Black Lives Matter was occurring, that what was important for us to do was understand that our voices aren't the voices that needed to be heard. Actually, this wasn't something that we necessarily were in a position to talk about. And what we should do is listen. And that meant for us, that meant three things, right? Like listen to the dialogue that was happening on a national and global level and you know, educate ourselves around that dialogue. Um, but probably more importantly than that was listen to our team's response to it. We have mm -hmm. a very young, very, very politically engaged team. We also have an ethnically diverse team. And it was important to listen to everyone across that team's opinions and thoughts on it. Um, and then equally listen to our suppliers. We have a thousand suppliers. Food is one of the greatest cultural leveling planes there is, especially when you come from a country like the UK where our national dishes are nowhere near as exciting as the national dishes we've adopted, right? We're, we're a nation mm -hmm. that we are, the most eaten dish in this country is chicken tikka masala, which is a 
bastardized version of an of an Indian dish, right? This is like that. That's our you know, cuisine is culture in this country, and it's the most exciting part of multiculturalism. So, for us, listening to our thousand suppliers and actually, how do they think that we should respond, and what conversations they, how they could help us inform our understanding, was really important. So that that's how we initially looked at it, and that's how we initially addressed it. And we wanted to take for Hugh and I, we felt there was a lot of companies made statements instantly, which. I, you know, you can't pass comment on anyone else's logic and everyone is valid in how they responded. But for us, I didn't feel comfortable saying anything until I could make a level of commitment that we knew we could then enact. And that, that was really important to me is to say, is for me to, I think very rightly, we would have been called out and said, but you're two white guys, like, what have you done? Like, great, you're saying you stand with this movement, but what are you actually doing? And I think for us that we really appreciate that we need to have, here's our plan of action. Um, so yeah, so the, the way we looked at it was, in terms of a business, it was instantly how do we remove bias and bias across the entire spectrum. So how do we remove conscious and unconscious bias? We're a tech business. Tech mm -hmm. is actually the interesting thing that people don't talk about often is that actually tech is can be incredibly racially biased because yep. it, it, it uses, it will replicate whatever human decisions are put into it. So, if the conversion rate on a supplier of black heritage versus the conversion rate of a supplier of white heritage is higher, your algorithms will double down on that and will continue to promote net, like that negative like bias. So for us, it's really, really important that we just audited that straight off. That was the most important thing. Right start, is there, is there any underlying bias in our tech? And so that was kind of what we started. Mm -hmm. But then, um, and then going further than that, that it's how conscious are we as a team? How can we be better as a team? How do we educate ourselves? How do we educate um, everyone internally? How do we do charity work? You know, there's a, there, we've, we've got a statement online, you know, anyone who's listening to this is really, really encouraged to go read it and also be really critical of it, right? Like, it's it's our response now, it's not our response for the next 10 years. It's the start of an ongoing dialogue that's necessary. Um, but all of that kind of led to one thing that we felt really strongly about is that this can't be something that management does. This has to be something that the company does. And yeah. if we're expected to hold ourselves to account, at the first, there's a danger that the first instance that we are, we can be distracted from this, it falls off our radar, right? At the next time we have to do a fundraise, and that's our main concern, does this become less of a priority? And it's really important that we are constantly and continually held to account and forced into always improving. So internally, we created what we, we called an anti-racism committee. And we said, this should, no one from senior management should be on this. This should be a total team process. And th the entire purpose of this as a committee is to hold Hugh and I to account to the pledges that we've made, the things we promised we're going to do, and regularly also, as well as also pushing us to always be better. And this is really, really important. This is, it's, it's really important that it is not something that Hugh and I sit on. You guys are meeting without us and coming to us and being critical of us. And it's and that was that for me that felt really important because again, you know, we have diversity in our team, but the two founders aren't. So it's really important that people tell us how to be better rather than us tell the company how to be better and us feel like being in a position of lecture. So that's how we did it. And then beyond that, the kind of the main terms of hiring and how we're looking at it, what we're going to do going forward, I think that we analyzed our hiring roadmap and our pipelines mm -hmm. and issue that we found was that actually we we found that we were good at hiring diverse if we had diverse candidates we were really bad at getting diversity in candidates and that is that that yep. existed 
it exists in gender in both directions. Certain roles, we had a huge volume of female candidates and certain roles had a huge volume of male candidates. And actually, we, you know, true diversity is equality and diversity across all aspects, across every role. So for us, we actually were realized that where we need to start was at the top of the funnel, right? The problem was, you know, the immediate problem was, are we getting uh, diversity across candidates? And then, and then it's also, then how do we make sure that we're given equality? So for us, it's, it's making sure that we no longer work with recruiters who don't provide diversity. If you're working with recruitment firms that are non-diverse, you can't expect mm -hmm. to get a diversity of candidates. Yes. You know, they're, they're, they'll have a bias. It's, it's, you know, the educational system in this country, England is still a very class-based country and that class mm -hmm. tends to be very white. Um, so it's understanding that we, you know, do we, we, do we remove education from as a category on CVs? Do we normalize that? Do we normalize the um, names of the candidates? Do we, how do we do things that just create this being much, much, being more colorblind, being more, yeah, allowing for more diversity? So that, that's how we've looked at it. And, but the main thing for us is, it, you know, change starts with at the home. And for us, we spend a very large amount of money every month on tools from mm -hmm. recruiters through to web tools and how do we actually just make it clear to all of those businesses that we we question what their diversity policies are and make sure that we're only spending our money in places that are being are creating the change that we as a business say that we want to see and so that was kind of that that's yeah for us that's in, in, in hiring it's yeah our, what jobs board are we posting to what recruiters are we using what tool what you know um management like um uh candidate management software we're using are they what is their statement on this what are the mm -hmm. where, where how what does their team make up like what are their pledges they're making that, that for us was felt like a actual actionable change that we can make now as well as in the longer term systemic changes around how do we ensure that we have greater diversity in senior management how do we ensure that we have um that we have greater diversity across the entire business so yeah that's it's a very rambling answer there's a lot it's, it's something we've <laughs> It's definitely something we've thought about a lot, and I think that no one, no one has a great, no one has the perfect answers. And this is something that's, I think, for me, the biggest lesson that I've learned is that it's a, it's constant understanding, it's constant reevaluation. It's like the only way we're going to get to a better kind of solution in the long term. I think it was actually a great answer, and I think it was a very <laughs> inspiring answer. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you so much for that. I would love to chat with this, uh, we chat about this for you for hours, but unfortunately, we are running out of time. Um, so I really want to thank you for being my guest today. Uh, at least I learned something from it. So uh, it's always cool to have guests on my podcast uh, uh, that I can learn from as well. So thanks so much for being here. Uh, for everyone who's listening to the, to the podcast, we are back soon with a new episode. So stay tuned. If you have any questions for Digby or for me, you know where to find us. We are on LinkedIn actively. Um, um, so you can always send us a message, of course. And I hope to see you on our next episode. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.